0: We are looking this morning at John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 25. And I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. John 21, verse 1. Now the Apostle, the beloved Apostle, writes, After this Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared dare ask him, Who are you? And they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die yet. Jesus did not say to him, he was not to die but if it is my will that he remain until I come what is that to you this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written the grass withers the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I have a confession to make this morning. I love golf, but I am not a good golfer. Some of you have golfed with me. You can attest to that. You will say amen. He is not a good golfer, but I learned something. I learned something at the Masters about 10 or so years ago. I was following Tiger Woods on the, on the second hole, and he hit what is arguably one of the worst shots I've seen a professional golfer hit, and I thought, oh, wow, that makes me feel better. And then I watched him for about 30 minutes as he tried to figure out how he was going to hit this golf ball that was in the woods under a tree branch. And I watched him put it like three feet from the hole. And I was like, oh, wow, it's all about the recovery. And I am not very good at the recovery. And then I thought, there is an analogy here for the Christian life. Because so often our Christian lives are beset by the discouragement of failures and the discouragement of backsliding and the discouragement of not walking closely with Jesus. And then we come to God's Word and we see someone like Simon Peter, who had failed the Lord so utterly, who had denied Jesus three times with cursing and Uh, even fearing a little slave girl outside of the high priest um, palace where Jesus was about to go forward to atone for sins. And then we come to the end of this gospel, and we see how marvelously Jesus restores Peter and sends him back. And in doing so, he teaches us that so much of the Christian life Is about the restoration and the recovery not that we do but that Jesus does for us and what Jesus does in us now I've already noted that John it seems is tacking on this chapter he ends the last chapter by saying now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And you would think that would be an apropos ending. There's almost no better way that John could bring this book to an ending because it is the purpose statement. I have written about all these miracles. I have shown you the inner life of Christ. I have given you a glimpse into the deep teachings of Christ. I have shown you the sufferings of Christ. And I have shown you the risen Jesus So that you may believe and by believing you have life in his name And then john gives us as it were this encore And I think that he does it Because the question that ought to naturally arise Arise in the hearts and minds of those who have believed in the lord jesus Is the question what about those times when I have failed him? What about those times those crucial times when I have failed to believe in him? I have failed to trust him as I ought. I have failed to walk in a way that is befitting of a disciple of Jesus. And so I think John is now turning our attention to Simon Peter. And in this third of these three couplets of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, John is essentially saying the resurrected Christ is deeply committed to restoring His wavering and faltering and sometimes failing disciples, consider Simon Peter and what the Lord is going to do for him. I want us to consider three things as we look at this chapter in a sort of cursory way this morning. First, I want us to consider the revealing of Jesus, and then I want us to consider the restoring of Peter. And then I want us to consider the refocusing of Jesus, the revealing of Jesus, the restoring of Peter, and the refocusing of Jesus. Well, notice this is a revelation. This is not just an appearance. Notice verse 21, verse 1. John says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. And notice that he says, and he revealed himself in this way. Jesus is coming to them To reveal himself to them. Now that's instructive because unless Jesus reveals himself to us, we will never believe in him. Unless he sovereignly reveals himself, we will never come to trust in him. Um, There's something here that I think John wants us to take away that our faith is utterly and absolutely dependent on the revelation of Jesus. Um, I love the words of that hymn because it was so true for me. Twenty-some years ago, Jesus sought me when a stranger. He revealed himself, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. And he, he comes to us. He comes to us at our low moments, not just at our high moments. Don't miss this. This is a low moment for these seven disciples we're going to see. This is a low moment for Simon Peter and the risen Jesus is committed to revealing himself to his people Not just when they are seeking to walk closely to him with him, but even and sometimes often, especially when they're not Because he knows our frame He remembers that we're dust He knows that we're weak. He knows that we like to wander. He knows that in and of ourselves we are going to make those terrible shots and are going to be paralyzed and discouraged and not be able to bring ourselves back up. You know, let me say this this morning. One of the most difficult things in the Christian life, and if you're a true believer, you have certainly experienced this, is when you fail and when you falter and when you give into sin that you know you shouldn't have. The next step is for you to live in the guilt and the shame and to be paralyzed by it, which we're going to see Simon Peter here in a minute. Paralyzed by it, instead of looking for the Christ. Who is always revealing himself, especially here in the assembly of the Saints, holding himself forth and saying, I am the risen Christ. I know your weak frame, and I've come to revive you and restore you. Now, I mentioned that this is a low point. There are seven disciples here. Notice that John lists them. Simon, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. And they're all together, and... Now, remember, the last time Jesus appeared to them, he he did that weird thing of breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send you out, you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to preach to people if they believe they're forgiven, if they don't, they're not, and he has already commissioned the disciples, minus Thomas at that point, now you would think they would be ready to go, but they're not. They have sort of slid into self-dependence mode. Notice Simon Peter being sort of chief among equals. In verse 3, he says to them, I'm going fishing. Now, you might not understand what's happening here if you rush through this, but Peter is essentially saying to these other six disciples, there's not much else for us to do. Let's go back to what we know how to do. Let's just go back to what we were doing before the Lord called us, before we followed him for three and a half years. Peter is essentially um, acting, in a sense, in sort of unbelief, and I think Peter does it because Peter has not yet been fully restored to Jesus. And so Peter is sort of giving up. That's, That's a great danger. When we've sinned, when we've fallen, the danger is for you to just want to throw the towel in, And say, you know what? I'm never going to get over this. I'm never going to be closer to Jesus. I'm never going to do better in this. And so what do we do then? Instead of trusting in Christ, we slide into self-dependence mode. And Peter essentially says, well, there's only one thing for us to do. Let's go do the one thing we know how to do. And notice the other disciples go with him. They said, we're going to go with you. And notice they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now these details are so important. Peter has just led these six other disciples into moving away from the mission of Christ and going back to what they had been before. And in doing so, by the way, there's only one thing that Peter and these seven in total, what these seven disciples know how to do, and that is they know how to fish. And yet they catch nothing. Um there are so many things here. I think one of the big lessons here is that, um, remember Jesus had said to the disciples in chapter 15, verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And, and we often hear that in the spiritual realm, and we say, that's right, without Christ, we can't do any, any spiritual good. But I think that that word has a broader application. I think Jesus is saying to them, without me, you literally cannot do anything, even what you think you can do. You can't do without me. They've been out all night. They haven't caught a fish. And remember, this is, this is sort of reminiscent, isn't it, of When Jesus called them at the beginning, remember back in Luke chapter 4, they had been out and they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus had told them, cast your net on the other side. And they had gotten that great catch and they're at the beginning of their call. And here at the end in his revelation to them, he is teaching them more about who he is for them. He is saying to them, even what you think you're good at. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to succeed in your vocation and found those frustrations that have kept you from being able to do what you think you can do, this is the principle. Even in our vocations, they may seem for a time unfruitful, and yet the Lord is teaching us to trust him, because even what we think we can do, we can't do without him. And notice that John tells us, as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples did not know it was Jesus. He said, children, do you have any fish? He knows that they don't. They said, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. They cast it. They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Um, Here I think Jesus is teaching them that they are absolutely dependent on him for everything down to a catch of fish. I also think that Jesus is revealing himself to them as the one who had said to them, remember at the beginning of their calling, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And in this illustration of them not being able to catch fish in their own strength, he is teaching them that spiritually, they are not going to be fishers of men apart from his singular working and blessing in them, through them, And by them as he works his will in them in using them in gathering people You know, I feel this as a pastor Uh, You can preach Sunday by Sunday week by week month by month year by year and never see fruit in certain individuals because at the end of the day Jesus is saying it's all dependent on me It's all dependent on my work. I have said I'm going to make you a fisher of men but it is absolutely dependent on what I am doing. Now, I think Jesus is also doing something in this revelation to the disciples. He is providing for them. Um, He has told them, I'm going to send you out. You're going to preach the gospel. I'm going to send you to the nations. I've given you my spirit. I'm giving you the mission to advance the kingdom and proclaim the good news. And, And there would have to be a question, how are they going to be provided for? And here Jesus is even providing for them in great compassion. He is, he is giving them 153 fish. Why 153? There have been pages and pages and pages of books written on this. And it's, it's exhausting reading it. And, and one of the most common... One of the most common explanations is that if you add up all the numbers from 1 to 17, you get 153. And and if you divide those by 10 and 7, being numbers of completion and wholeness, and on and on and on, I think it's just because it was 153. It was a lot of fish. A whole lot of fish. And financially, that would have provided for the disciples until Pentecost. Until Christ poured his spirit out and empowered them and sent them out. He is caring for them. Think about this. The risen Jesus cares about your soul. He also cares that you're provided for. He cares about the whole of his people. Um, I think that there is sort of a transition now as they see Jesus on the shore and John sees him and they're on the boat and he's on the shore and there's the water between them and and they know that it's the Lord, and John makes that great declaration. It's the Lord. And then there's a transition. Now all the focus is on Simon Peter. Um, notice notice at the second part of verse 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now, what is going on here? We have seen the revelation Of Jesus he's going to cook them a meal here in a minute. He's going to care for their needs. He's going to Reveal himself as the risen Christ to them and and yet This is the restoration. This is the beginning of the process of the restoration of Peter Um, By the way, you don't put on your clothes if you want to swim in the ocean That should seem strange to you. You take your clothes off if you want to go swimming Here, Peter has been stripped down, maybe to a very small loincloth, because they're, they're working so hard to try to pull these fish in. And now that they see Jesus, and he hears John declaring that it is the Lord, Peter puts on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. And what is the point of that? I think our minds are supposed to go back to the garden, when Adam and Eve were naked. And were unashamed, and then sin came in, and they immediately tried to cover the shame of the guilt of their sin. That's what you're doing every day of your life if you're not trusting Jesus. Whether it is work, success, money, status, medicine, children, experiences. it's all people trying to clothe themselves. And cover the shame of our nakedness. And Peter is ashamed. Peter is still living with the shame of denying Christ. He wants to be with Christ. He wants to go as quickly as he can. He has great zeal to be with Christ. But he will not do it yet because his conscience is not yet settled that Christ has restored him. Now that restoration had already begun, remember when after he had denied the Lord, Jesus just with a glance looked at him. And Peter started weeping because he he knew he had failed the Christ who loved him. And yet, Peter now, even though he has met the risen Jesus, even though he knows that all things are accomplished, he, he is still not yet wholly restored. He is not yet fully recovered spiritually. And so, he goes and Jesus cooks them this breakfast. By the way... I love this so much. He cooks them this breakfast at this fire, and Charles Spurgeon said that they were essentially so crummy at this point as disciples that a wet snack would have been good enough for them. But Jesus makes them a good meal over this fire, and he is, he is showing them his love and his care for them. But he is interested in restoring Peter, and so notice that he has set the stage for the restoration of Peter. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's only two times. There's only two times in um, in the Gospels in which a charcoal fire is mentioned. The first is back in chapter 18, verse 8, when Peter is warming himself at the fire as he denies Jesus. And the other is right here, as Jesus is essentially recreating the scene of Peter's denial. He is trying to trigger in Peter's mind, I know what has happened, I know what's burdening you, I know what is weighing you down, I know why you are putting your outer garments on out of shame, and I am here to restore you, but in order to do that, I've got to bring you back to deal deeply with what's going on in your heart. Um, Harry Reader has often said um, To people it's not enough to fix the wall that you see if the wall is broken You've got to go down deep and figure out what's happening down below the surface In the foundation that's what Jesus is doing with Peter. He's taking him back to that moment when Peter denied him and when Peter who remember Peter had said so clearly, Lord, even if all of these deny you, I will never deny you. And Jesus is going to come to him in a moment and he's going to say to him in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The ones that you said, even if these deny you, I will never deny you. See, Jesus is going down deep and in a very real sense, he's not just taking Peter back to the fire where Peter denied Jesus three times, he's taking him all the way back to so the calling of Peter, I've already noted that in the, the very calling of the disciples, they were on boats, and they weren't catching anything, and Jesus told them what to do. And in the calling of Peter, remember, when, when he realizes who Jesus is, and he draws in that great, miraculous catch of fish at the very beginning, and he falls down and he says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He has come to realize that this is God in the flesh, and yet Peter has forgotten. He has forgotten who Christ is. And so Jesus is not only resetting the scene of his fall, he is taking him all the way back to his initial call. And I think that it's important because here he addresses him as Simon, that original name, when he first called him. He's taking him all the way back, and he's saying, and don't miss this, he's saying, in order for me to restore you, I have to take you back to where you fell, but I have to take you back all the way to the moment when I called you. You see, how does Jesus restore us? He reminds us, not just of where we have failed him in order to bring about repentance in us, he reminds us of what he did for us at the very beginning of our Christian life. Um, There is arguably no more powerful incentive to recovering spiritually when we have fallen but to remember what Christ did for us at the very beginning of our Christian life when he brought us from darkness to light when we came to know in our souls the love of Christ for the first time when we were able to sing from the heart almost uh, every time weeping Jesus sought me when a stranger and if he did it back then We can be confident that he will restore us when we fail today He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of christ jesus peter is a mark of that Now, let me say this this morning because I don't need to know where you've been to know how sinful you are Um, Somebody said of john owen A little old lady said dr. Owen must be a great sinner to be able to preach against sin so well We are all very great sinners, and we all fail in many ways. James says we all stumble in many ways. The risen Jesus stands here this morning, and he says to you, no matter what you've done, he says, if I began a work in you, I'm going to bring it to completion. Yes, I will have to do the heart work, the painful heart work of reminding you of where you have failed in order to bring about real repentance, but I will remind you that I have called you That I have drawn you to myself and that I'm going to keep you, even when you have failed. Now, Jesus, in restoring Peter, he does slow work. He does slow work. Notice this, and we don't need to go through this in great detail, but there's the threefold questioning of Peter, right? That's to meet the threefold denial, isn't it? Peter had denied him three times around that fire. Jesus is going to question him three times. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Uh, That's going to be a painful question for Peter. Uh, Peter does love the Lord. Not as he ought, but in sincerity he loves Christ. And that question is going to be part of the slow and even painful work of Christ. Do you really love me? You know that I love you. And Jesus will use different words. And Peter and Jesus will go between those two words for love. And perhaps there's a picture there that one of those is Peter saying, I love you with that friendship and fellowship of human love. And Jesus is saying, I'm talking about that greater, that higher love, the love for the divine Savior. Uh, But perhaps it's just Jesus uncovering through these synonyms in in Peter, what's actually in his heart? Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson says this beautiful. He says we all need to understand that repentance or restoration always involves the painful process of getting back to where you started with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's obviously very sore. Very sore. But you know when the Lord Jesus restores you, you wouldn't have it any other way. You wouldn't have cheap grace. You wouldn't have a quick fix. You wouldn't want it. You would want him to be a slowly burning savior. Making sure that he was really doing deep-seated heart work in your life that would make a permanent change in you. Now I want that. And I hope you want that. The Lord Jesus wants that for you. He wants deep-seated, real heart restoration, no matter how you've fallen, no matter how you've failed. Now, true believers are going to hear that and say, I long for that in the soul. Unbelievers are going to be totally lost on it. It's going to be totally just missed on them. Because only a true believer can feel The beginnings of grace that Jesus began and to can feel the pain of failing him and faltering and falling where an unbeliever doesn't feel any of that Peter deeply feels this you get the sense that when Jesus is doing that slow heart work that Peter is saying in frustration Lord you know that I love you you know all things you know I want to love you more you know I want to follow you you know I want to be with you I've just jumped off the fishing boat into the sea with my clothes on to come to you, but Jesus is saying, there is more work that needs to be done in your heart. And then he gives him that threefold commissioning, if you love me, feed my sheep, if you love me, tend my lambs, if you love me, feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing in the restoration of Peter? Jesus is actually saying to him, I am not just going to remove the guilt and shame of your sin and failing. I am going to show you I want to use you in my kingdom. I want you to be useful. I want you to be fruitful. If you do love me, I want you to go and feed my sheep. Now, Jesus is saying two things here. Number one, he's saying no true Christian service and ministry can really be carried out apart from love to Christ. Everything else is just going to be legal, it's going to be you trying to score points before God, and there are no points to be scored before God. So, any true service, and by the way, I think one of the reasons why people quit ministry, why they quit serving, why they just give up, is because they've given up on loving Christ. You know, our hearts often grow cold and dim, And so the word that Jesus says to Peter here, we need to hear. The key to fruitfulness in ministry is love to the Christ who has loved us and has come even to restore us when we fail, and the Christ that wants to make you fruitful in service in his kingdom. He says, Peter, if you love me, care about my people. Feed them with the meat of my word. Shepherd them as I am shepherding you. And then notice in the restoration in verse 18, that very painful statement, Jesus is going to tell Peter, and it's going to be painful. It's going to be costly. Serving me and ministering my word is going to cost you even your life. When you were young, you went where you wanted. You did what you wanted. You had an easy life. Just like he does at the beginning of this chapter when he says, let's go fishing. He had all the ease, and Peter says, but when you're old, Another one is going to stretch out your hands and carry you where you don't want to go, and he's talking about the martyrdom of Peter, that what I'm calling you to do is going to be very costly. It is going to cost you. By the way, the Christian life is very costly. Um, If anyone, and there are myriads of Christians who think it's easy and fun, and let's just entertain ourselves, and that's our Christianity, that's not Christianity. Christianity. Christianity is not the next concert or camp. It is costly. And Jesus says, but I am even going to be there and I'm going to be carrying you. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to be supporting you, sustaining you. Now, one of the really amazing things about this section, and I would encourage you to do this, is spend some time reading Peter's first and second letters. First and second Peter. And one of the common themes that Peter runs through both of those epistles is the theme of enduring the suffering of the brothers throughout the world. That Jesus had said to him, you're going to suffer, go strengthen your brethren. He tells them, you're going to suffer. And he says, essentially, what Paul says elsewhere, it is light affliction because there is an estimal glory, an inheritance that cannot be shaken, an inheritance that does not fade away, reserved for you in glory. And Peter is going to say, endure the hardship, endure the opposition, endure the persecution. Why is that important? Because that's not the Simon Peter that we see right here. He becomes that because Jesus restores him by his grace. Um... I want us to finally just focus on the refocusing of Jesus. We've seen the revealing of Christ, the restoring of Peter, and now the refocusing. Now, I always feel like Simon Peter, when the Lord begins to deal with me, my attention gets distracted very quickly, and and Peter's attention gets very distracted. Here, Jesus just said to him, "Go feed my sheep." You're going to lay down your life for me. It's going to be difficult and costly. And, and Peter sort of misses it, right? Notice Peter, in verse 20, he turns and he sees John, the disciple and Jesus' love, following them. And, and, and he says to Jesus, well, what about that guy? This, we laugh, but we all do this. He's like, but what about that guy, Lord? What are you going to do with him? And Jesus is like, even if I will, that he should remain until I come again, what is that to you? Listen to this. John Calvin says, we have in Peter an instance of our curiosity, which is not only superfluous, but even hurtful. When we are drawn aside from our duty by looking at others, for it is most natural for us to examine the way in which other people live instead of examining our own and to attempt to find in them idle excuses. What Calvin says is, Peter's here comparing himself, and he's saying, well, Lord, what are you going to do with him? Because if you're not going to do the same thing with him, I'm not sure it's worth it. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, he's saying, focus. You, focus on me. You, follow me. You, put your eyes on me. Even if everyone else around you is not, and even if the hand that I deal you is painful, And the hand that I deal them is not. You focus on me. Um, That's a hard word to learn. My dad used to say to me when I was a boy, you know, Nick, if, if you want to follow Jesus, don't look behind you because there will be very few people following. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. You worry about yourself. I'm here for you. And I want you to follow me. And that is the word to us this morning. You know, my wife and I often joke, and it's a joke in the church, especially in the last century or two, that whenever a sermon is preached, that we often have the tendency to sit there and think, man, I really hope so-and-so is listening to this. Because that guy doesn't listen really well. And he really needed to hear it. And that is the wrong response. I need to hear this. I need the risen Jesus to say to me, you follow me, you fix your eyes on me, you know that I have begun a good work in you and I'm going to bring it to completion, you trust me, you rest in the fact that I'm going to be with you even if I call you into difficult terrain of suffering in your service toward me. And we would learn, as we do that, to examine our own ways, rather than looking at the ways other people live and trying to find in them idle excuses, as Calvin so noted. Well, I want to just point out, as we close this morning, the the epilogue to this book. And notice John is... He's bearing witness to all these things. He's telling us all of these things really happened. Jesus really revealed himself. Jesus really restored Peter. Jesus really refocused Peter. And he's saying this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. He's written about these things. We know that his testimony is true. And then notice verse 25. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books That would be written. Now, I think, if I can leave you with this thought this morning as we close our time in this book, that what the Apostle John says here at the end of this book is essentially this Look, Jesus did so many more miracles, Jesus taught so many other things, Jesus did so many other things throughout his life that it would be impossible. To recount each one of them, but we were eyewitnesses, and we have strategically chosen, by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, to put these things in God's Word for you so that you would believe. I have a little spiritual fantasy. That one of the things that I'm going to get to see in glory is every second of the life of Jesus that God didn't show us in Scripture. Well, I'm content with what he's given us here because he lived his life for us in our place. And he hung on the cross to be able to restore us as he restored Peter. What is going to bring about your restoration and my restoration when we fail? It's that Jesus took the guilt and the shame of Peter on himself on the cross. He took the wrath that Peter deserved. When we live, let me just put this out here this morning. When we live in a sense of condemnation, shame, guilt, paralysis because of our failures, we're forgetting that Jesus has lived the life that we couldn't live for us and that he has stood in our place on the cross under the wrath that we deserve so that when I read in the New Testament that my sinful actions are deserving of the wrath of God, the only response is condemnation unless there is another who lived that life perfectly and sinlessly all the way to the point of death for me, so that when I look at his restoration of Peter, I can be confident. If he could restore Peter, he can restore me. Now, I want that to be a word for you this morning. The worst thing you could do is leave this place and totally miss everything that Jesus is teaching you. He wants you to know that in his resurrection condition and state, he is committed to your restoration no matter where you've fallen and faltered. He is committed in recommissioning you to usefulness in his church and in growing you in love for him and in building you up in confidence that you would continue trusting in him. I said as we began this morning, I wish I could re-preach this book. That's it. That's all you're getting this time around. But I do hope that the Lord will use it. I hope that you'll remember that without him you can do nothing. And I hope that you'll be encouraged that he is committed not just to redeeming you, but to restoring you and making you useful in his kingdom. Let me pray for us this morning father in heaven we do ask this morning that you would give us a new glimpse of the lord jesus even as he has revealed himself to the disciples and restored peter and refocused him we pray lord jesus that you would do those things for us as we come to the table this morning we pray that you would prepare us to have our eyes fixed on you to know what you have done for us and to refocus us and encourage us and Restore us no matter where we are in our Christian life. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.